When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In our last episode, the hard-bitten undercover agent, Wittenberg to Westphalia had infiltrated the Agora Podcast Network, a ring of independent podcasters focused on delivering intelligent educational content to an unsuspecting public. This month, which, despite appearances, is being released in March, our agent has been given a mission which will challenge ethical boundaries he thought long dead, in no way whatsoever. Indeed, it is a pleasure to recommend to you all When Diplomacy Fails, a fine podcast we receive courtesy of Zach Twomley. Zach, who started out as an undergrad and is now a PhD candidate, if you'll believe it, does a show about the political stories and reasons behind conflicts. Though not afraid of the details or the deep background, this is a show not about battles, but about negotiation, incentives, and the ineffabilities of culture and personality. The show hops around in time as Zach researches different subjects, but currently Zach is in the middle of representing a series on the Thirty Years' War which might interest a few of you. So go check out When Diplomacy Fails, available wherever fine podcasts are given away for free, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Speaking of intelligent recorded content, do you all remember last year when I presented at Intelligent Speech? No? Well, it was an independent educational podcast convention that happened last year in New York City that was put together by Royfield Brown of the Mid-Atlantic Podcast. It was a lot of fun. I helped put it together. I met some great folks. Royfield got us all very drunk. Well, this year, Royfield was going to put on another one, but those plans were somewhat derailed when he ended up stuck in quarantine in London. So he decided to take it online. And incidentally, he asked me to help out, so I get in for free. Oh, also, I basically handpicked three quarters of the speakers list. So this is kind of a wet dream for me. What does this mean for you? Well, it means that wherever you are, and basically whatever your financial situation, you can probably go to this event. It's happening on June 27th from 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that's a full day of presentations and roundtable discussions happening live and available everywhere on the planet, all for $10. And just to be clear, we're not talking about just eight hours of content. No siree, Bob. As in physical conferences, there will be four virtual rooms operating simultaneously for concurrent 40-minute sessions, with five minutes for passage between sessions. So, in case you don't have a calculator handy or a spreadsheet, that's 44 sessions for you to pick from over the course of eight hours, featuring some of the biggest names in educational podcasting, like Jamie Redfern of the History of the United States, Robin Pearson of the History of Byzantium, and Chris Stewart of the History of China podcast. But it won't just be podcasts. There will be a STEM panel and presentations including Sam Hansen from Relatively Prime and Jennifer Daschle from the Art Curious podcast. 
I myself am going to be on something like four panels, so take that for what it's worth. This is going to be huge. There will be something for everybody, and it's going to cost $10. So clear out your calendar for June 27th, head over to intelligentspeechconference.com, and get your ticket today. Sorry for the long intro today, folks, but we do tend to have a bunch of housekeeping after these long breaks. If it helps at all in explaining it, um, with the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, I am working from home with my wife and my toddler. My wife, of course, is the only one in the house who had trouble breathing. But with me working, that meant that she was doing the childcare duties mostly. So that was hard. And then just to make things a little bit more interesting, I got activated into my state's COVID-19 task force. I am now preparing maps and stuff to help us deal with this situation, which is very exciting. And I'm really happy to be able to be of service in a time like this. But of course, it does mean I have less time for doing things like writing podcast scripts and stuff like that. And just, you know, with everything that's been going on, it's been really hard for me to get it together in my head to cram through the last uh, source that I had. Oh, and then I nearly died. So, yeah, my daughter was out uh, with me in a park and basically decided it would be a great idea to try and splash in a river that turns out to be really deep and have no banks. And so she went in and then I had to go in after her and my phone's busted and uh, I got her out, but then I couldn't get out. So um, a couple of very nice homeless gentlemen in the park came and rescued me. Really great guys. And so anyway, yeah, so there's been a lot going on. And then, of course, when I did actually get a script recorded, I got it done just in time for Andrew to need to cram for his thesis. Um, he did get his thesis in. It seems to have gone well. He was permitted four hours of rest and one beer, and then he was forced to return to work. Anyway, I hope that explains why it's been so long, and... Thank you all for your patience, especially the patrons. You guys have been great. I, you know, you've actually increased your donations, so I really, really appreciate that. And I'm going to do my best to get caught up on these episodes and stuff. And hopefully you'll appreciate that I took the time to do something good rather than just shoot something out the door with half my brain on it with everything that's been going on. So, okay, next up. Listener John wrote in to correct something from the British Isles walking tour episode. Amongst the many dumb things I said in that episode, John pointed out that I managed to confuse the Orkney and Shetland Islands. In the episode, I said that the Orkneys were north of the Shetlands, when in fact the opposite is true. Mea culpa. For pointing this out, and for a <coughs> small monetary contribution via PayPal, John will be recognized from henceforth as Earl John, the official geographer of the Dyslexic Brotherhood. And before y'all at me, that name was my idea, and I'm mildly dyslexic. So... Of course, John is not the only one worthy of honor and praise. Indeed, several are the donors and patrons whose services to the realm have earned them titles, lands, and not a little sniveling groveling on my part, if we're being honest. In the last month or so, we have donor Carla, who, due to her services to the realm, shall be known from henceforth as Carla, the relatively well-liked. Next up, we have Jay, who shall be known from this day to the next as Heresiarch Jay. Podcast footnote. Thank you to all our worthy lords and ladies who have signed up to support the realm. And if you wish to join their surried ranks, head over to the website, uh, wittenbergtwestphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and head on over to the support page. You can also go to the store page and buy some t-shirts, which is also highly appreciated. They are both stylish and comely on human bodies. And now, on with the show.
in the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story. Carthage, sometime in the 3rd century. Note that God gave women many prerogatives, not only over other living things, but even over man himself, and this by nature, by grace, and by glory. In a world of nature, she excelled man by her origin, for a man he made of the vile earth, but woman he made in paradise. Man he formed of the slime, but woman of man's rib. She was not made of a lower limb of a man, as, for example, his foot, lest man should esteem her his servant, but from his midmost part, that he should hold her to be his fellow, as Adam himself said, The woman whom thou gavest as my helpmate. In the world of grace she excelled man. We do not read of any man trying to prevent the passion of our Lord, but we do read of a woman who tried, namely, Pilate's wife, who sought to dissuade her husband from so great a crime. Again at his resurrection, it was to a woman he first appeared, namely to Mary Magdalene. In the world of glory, for the king in that country is no mere man, but a mere woman is its queen. It is not a mere man who is set above the angels and all the rest of the heavenly court, but a mere woman is. Nor is anyone who is merely man as powerful as there is a mere woman. Thus is a woman's nature in Our Lady raised above man's in worth and dignity and power. And this should lead women to love God and to hate evil. Quote from To All Women by Humber de Romans, Master General of the Dominican Order. Rome, 13th century. And do you not know that you are Eve? You are the gate of the devil, the traitor of the tree, the first deserter of divine law. You are she who enticed the one whom the devil dare not approach. You broke so easily the image of God, man, on account of the death you deserved. Even the Son of God had to die. Quote from Galatians by Tertullian. Quotes read by Fry and Bry of the Pontifacts podcast, a history of all the popes of Rome, in order, and ranked. The text of both quotes came from Women in the Middle Ages by Francis and Joseph Geis. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia. This is episode 63, Women Part 1, The Fourth Estate. In the last few episodes, we discussed the issue of groups that do not fit comfortably into the concept of normal that any society sets up, but in particular in terms of the Middle Ages. Specifically, we discussed the difficulty of even finding a normative concept in the social order of the Middle Ages, but did find that Jews, Muslims, and lepers could definitely be seen as outside the mainstream. We looked at how ideological and economic incentives impacted the way they lived their lives, and the surprisingly, well, normal aspects of that life for centuries. Today we will begin to discuss the most strange and terrifying minority of all, women. Now, obviously, that was a joke. Describing women as a minority is an absurdity. Even in the Middle Ages, women and girls made up a slim or not-so-slim majority of the population for reasons that demographers continue to argue about to this day. In the Middle Ages, this is a particularly interesting question, since the trend held in spite of the horrific dangers of childbirth in an era without sterile medical conditions. 
In some classes, most notably the aristocracy, the preference of men for dangerous sports and warfare seems to have seriously exacerbated the imbalance, though that wouldn't explain the continuance of this demographic oddity today, and anyway, let's move on. And yet, women were clearly not normal, in the same way that Jews and Muslims and lepers were not normal in the last few episodes. As we will see, literature and law were almost always composed by men, and if women showed up, it was clearly as an othered group. This is probably not surprising to you. If you have any knowledge of any human society ever, the binary gender divide should be a fairly familiar piece of sociological furniture. But it's kind of odd when you think about it. Human society needs women. Even if you ignore the biological need to reproduce, they are half the population. As we saw in the last two episodes, Jews and Muslims were important enough economically, despite their small numbers compared to the population as a whole, to be able to carve out social niches for themselves. If it's worth our time to examine how these religious subcultures functioned within wider European social structures, it should be obvious that we need to address women as well, because there were more of them. On the other hand, there is a danger here. By dedicating at least several episodes just to talking about women, am I perpetuating this sense of non-normalcy? After all, however the people of the Middle Ages thought about things, women existed in almost every strata of society. They were there. There were women aristocrats, women peasants, women monastics. Is my doing this show just a way to excuse myself for not talking about them enough earlier in the show, or worse, is it a redundant effort to score woke points? Let me put it this way. It has been nearly 50 years since the structuralist historical bulwark was shattered by the battering ram of second-wave feminist commentaries and 40 years since the forlorn hope of third-wave feminism charged the breach, fought their way through the garrison, and raised the black and purple flag upon the shattered ramparts of academic history. As the gates opened, their allies and the other non-normative commentary traditions entered the city, with racial commentary occupying City Hall, the neo-Marxists flooding into the streets, and the LGBT commentators raising their rainbow banner in battle against the holdouts in the keep. I uh, seem to have let my metaphor get away from me. But the point is that, in the years since post-structuralism began in earnest, commentaries of all sorts have proliferated, re-examining every facet of the role of women in history and producing celebrated historical triumphs in realms as diverse as methodology, biography, and economics. Though I am neither a woman nor a feminist historian, at least in the sense that I do not use gender as my main lens for examining history, there is simply no way for a serious modern historian even an amateur historian like myself, to escape the impact of feminist theory without an act of absolute willful ignorance. The scope of this can be subtle. Previous generations of historians might, for example, have simply accepted the stories told by Leut Prand of Cremona about the Theophylact dynasty and their sexual excesses. For me, without even consciously trying to get into any kind of articulated feminist theory, I view these misogynistic and highly sensationalistic writings by a celibate bishop as... Suspect. If I had had any other options from a primary source perspective, I would have rejected Liutprand out of hand. Of course, I didn't have any alternatives to Liutprand, as I bemoaned at length in those episodes, so I was forced to try and parse out which elements of Liutprand were too outrageous to be true in their cultural context, and question whether the puritanical sexual morals that I inherited from later periods might even be coloring my interpretation. Maybe Theodora Theophylact was actually some kind of liberated, free-love sexual girl boss. If she was, who am I to judge? So what was Liutprand's intention? Is there supporting evidence? Was this kind of behavior plausible in the context of the time? Is it possible that this was all a literary trope? 
ultimately, I decided that Leo Prand was using literary tropes, that none of his narrative descriptions of the Theophylax could really be trusted beyond the barest facts without some supporting evidence, which was slim, and I restricted my narrative to very bare essentials. This might seem like sensible historical methodology, and I hope it was, but the influence of feminist theory on that process is one of the most profound aspects of modern historiographical change. While historians have known to be deeply critical of sources for centuries, the fact that this primary source was a celibate man describing a woman set off red flags before I even really thought about it. The techniques of documentary criticism brought into history from the world of literary theory that birthed modern academic feminism is also clear here as is my second guessing of my estimation of even my own thresholds for sexual morality. These techniques did not necessarily originate in feminist historical methods alone, but through them they have become a key part of the DNA of all legitimate historical methodologies. There was a lot of jargon in there, I apologize. If, if you want me to like translate any of that into normal, just shoot me a line. Anyway, beyond what we might call the unconscious impact of feminism on my process, there have been conscious efforts on my part to highlight women in this show. Beyond making the effort to talk about some of the women just mentioned, I have made the effort to be very careful with my pronouns. This is certainly a subtle and possibly silly thing for me to spend as much time on as I have, but I have gone out of my way to say they or them when talking about generic noble landlords controlling their peasants. As we will see, this could be a woman as often as a man, and I wanted to avoid glossing that over. In this process, I have benefited from decades of research that has brought to light the contribution and roles of women in the Middle Ages. Whether or not the authors I have consulted were consciously feminist in their theoretical frameworks, those historians who discussed the Theophylacts, Empress Adelaide, Lady Ermengarde, and all the other wonderful fleeting glimpses we got of women rulers in Italy, these authors who worked to bring their lives to light were working consciously or unconsciously in the post-structuralist and thus heavily feminist-influenced historiographical world. The point is that pretty much everyone who I've read in this show has been influenced by feminism. I'm not going over all this to big myself up or burnish my credentials as a man to do this show about women. On the contrary, if I think I've done such an awesome job talking about women in this show, why even do these episodes? Uncharacteristically, my answer here is pretty simple. I need to give you a few episodes on women because I have more to say about women that I didn't say earlier, and which I think is important for you to know, and a lot of the discussion about it has to happen in terms of a discussion specifically about women. It wouldn't make sense to be having a conversation about the peasants and then just stop and talk for 10 minutes about property theory. As with the episodes on the other non-normative groups, the goal here is not to put ashes on our heads and wallow in the miseries of the past, but to examine a real set of phenomenon that were a major part of the day-to-day -day life of the Middle Ages. In short, the existence of two genders in medieval society had an impact on how people lived their lives. It's something I have not properly explored thus far, though I have tried to give women their due, and knowing about these social processes will help us better understand the Middle Ages and the early modern period that grew out of it. Over the next few episodes, I think we will see that the status of women not only requires further elaboration upon what I've already tried to incorporate in the show, but that it will further deepen our insight into the society of the Middle Ages as a whole. It's far from a simple topic, and conditions, as always, differ dramatically by class, geographic location, and individual talents, but it's a story that we need to look at. Podcast Footnote once again, I will not be directly dealing with LGBT or gender fluidity issues in much depth in today's episode. Here, actually, I will put on that hair shirt and cover myself in ashes. I am sorry. These are important issues, and I'm not trying to deny their importance. Rather, I need to concede my own ignorance. 
to any in the audience interested, I will do my best to gather materials on these subjects and do episodes on it at some point in the future. But the documentation is limited in terms of primary source materials, to say the least, though it does exist. I have run across it. The field of study is also comparatively new. I say comparatively, we are really talking about stuff that emerged in the 90s, and as my joints remind me, the 90s are increasingly a long time ago. However, there have been many more decades of stuff about women in the historical literature than there have been about LGBT issues, and so the source material is a little bit more limited in terms of what I have access to. From a larger scale, you know, obviously the, they need their own episodes, and so obviously these episodes are not those episodes. Though uh, LGBT issues and women's issues are often linked, for better or for worse. In short, I will be getting to them, but today is not that day. If any of you happen to have academic resources on these subjects, feel free to reach out, and I will attempt to incorporate them into my research process. I can't promise when I will get to this. I am eager to move back to the narrative again, and I have very little on hand right now, so unless someone dumps like five books in my lap tomorrow, I'm probably not going to get to this until after we deal with the investiture controversy. I hope that's okay. Again, it's not because I don't think this stuff is important. Obviously, I do. This has been a fairly long footnote, but I just don't have the materials, and I apologize. End podcast footnote. Of course. I am not the first person to wrestle with the need to increase representation, the wealth of available material, and the looming danger of tokenism, which is all as nice a segue as any to allow me to talk about my sources. I have three main sources for these episodes, and several important secondary sources that I should also talk about. Secondary in the sense of their importance to these episodes, not in the traditional, you get what I'm saying. My favorite source for these episodes is Women in the Middle Ages by Francis and Joseph Geis, who were also the authors of Life in a Medieval City and Life in a Medieval Village, both of which I have used as sources in this show. The Geises were an absolutely adorable couple who wrote a series of highly respected books about the Middle Ages which are often used as introductory surveys in undergrad college courses. Indeed, this was my first introduction to them back in the day. They have the unique and highly sought-after talent for writing entertaining and relatable books that are also highly respected by historians and archaeologists. They presented this talent as a couple and as individuals in a publishing career that started in the 1960s and only ended in 2005, just a year before Joseph died. Francis passed just in 2013. This is not the first time I've dipped into their back catalog, and if you find anything in bookstores or online, I highly recommend them. At the very least, go Google them and check out their picture. Aren't they cute? I love old couples. Just want to put them in my pocket and take them home and have them be my new grandparents. Anyway, as with most introductory books, this one has aged and might strike an expert as thin. But honestly, I found their arguments amongst the most insightful and convincing of the three main sources that I used, and they do more with their thin paperback than most historians do with several volumes. My most meh source is a source book. Women's Lives in Medieval Europe, 2nd edition, edited by Emily Ampt. Sourcebooks like this are really important if you, like me, are trying to get a flavor of the primary sources available from quarantine without spending a bank on database memberships. Sourcebooks can also be really dry and repetitive, especially if they are the third book that you are reading out of three and the subject matter is underrepresented in the documentary record, so you get some repetitions between the three sources. Let's just say that if I never read the Guild Regulations of London ever again, it will be too soon. However, a very important book. 
Before I get to my third main source, I just want to address two of the minor sources that ended up being fairly important for these episodes. The first up being Norman Cantor's The Civilization of the Middle Ages. Norman Cantor is interesting as he's sort of akin to a maybe a 1960s version of Stephen Ambrose, although he published well into the 2000s. He's a person who was a trained academic historian, but produced pop history works that sometimes the mainstream academic community had problems with. He never had a plagiarism scandal the way Stephen Ambrose did, fortunately for Norman Kander, unfortunately for Stephen Ambrose. However, some of his ideas were maybe overstated or overenthusiastically stated in his books. We will certainly see an example of that as we go forward, though I will say that his theses, while not specifically correct, often help me frame how I'm thinking about things as I look at the Middle Ages, and certainly many people agree with that as well. The other sort of minor source that's worth talking about, we will be getting into some stuff about Greek civilization. I am not a specialist in the ancient world at all. I'm, I mean, I'm not a specialist in, in anything history related, but certainly the ancient Greeks, while something I have studied, are not an area of special interest for me. So for some of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about, I touched base with my friend Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Uh, we had a nice talk about women in ancient Greece, mostly in Athens, because that's where we have most of the work that survives from from there. So that was a really useful way to touch base. It drummed up stuff that I'd gotten from other sources and other reading that I'd done over the years. So it's not like I'm basing everything entirely on that conversation or on his show. But if you would like a, a really good in-depth look at women in ancient Greece, uh, go check out his episodes on that. I forget which ones they are, but the History of Ancient Greece podcast by Ryan Stitt. It's worth checking out. Of course, if I say anything about ancient Greece that is in error, that's my fault. And if I got anything right, I owe it all to the conversation that Ryan and I had. My most challenging source, and probably the most important, was The Fourth Estate, A History of Women in the Middle Ages by Shulemith Shahar. This book examines the thesis that women constituted a fourth estate in the Middle Ages. Most of you probably get the reference already, but for the sake of the kids in the back, European society is often thought of as consisting of three estates. Those who fought, those who prayed, and those who worked. We could also say three classes. And then there's women, who were in all three of the estates or classes, but who always somehow were held as a separate group in the culture and legal records of the time. This thesis is so interesting that since it was first published in 1983, most students of women's history in the Middle Ages have had to grapple with it in some way, even if, as its author readily admits in the introduction to my 2003 edition, it fails to deal with whole swaths of research that have occurred since on ex the experiences and social functions of women in the Middle Ages. Being myself nothing if not a derivative hack, I'm going to follow suit, and this question will serve to help me structure the next few episodes. I certainly did not agree with all of Dr. Shahar's interpretations of the evidence. My use of evidence and interpretation is certainly going to be a mixture of all three sources. But I do think the question, were women a fourth estate in the Middle Ages, is a useful one. It provides a useful framework for examining the experiences of women in the Middle Ages. And I think that in the process of examining that question, it will help tell us about how wider European society was composed, which is, of course, at least part of why I'm doing this. So that brings us to how I'm going to structure the second half of today's episode. I'm going to begin to lay out the cultural context of the status of women in the Middle Ages by addressing sort of what happened before the Middle Ages. 
Next time out, I will discuss women in each of the three classes of European society, or as many as I can get into one episode. And then I will hopefully be able to conclude this run of episodes by drawing out the larger ideological, legal, and economic status of women as women in the Middle Ages. I'm going to do my best to address the very real geographic differences and also, like, maybe Jewish women and Muslim women, and I may need to go lie down. This is all a lot. In any case, let's get to it. The Deep Cultural Context of the Status of Women in the Middle Ages It will hopefully not come as a shock to you that the ideological place of women in the largely Christian society of the Middle Ages was one defined mostly by men. And not just men, celibate men, many of whom actively feared and hated women. So, we're off to a good start. But actually, this isn't really the start. To understand this situation fully, we're going to have to go back to even before the monks, even before the Roman Empire. Do you guys have a Roman Empire drinking game yet? You probably should. I do. Anyway, the thing is, Christianity did not come from a vacuum. Just as the culture of the Middle Ages came from a merger of late Roman and German cultural antecedents, late Roman culture came from a merger of Christian and early Roman cultural antecedents, and also early Roman culture came from a merger of Greek and native Roman cultural antecedents, and then Christianity ultimately came from a merger of Jewish and wider Mediterranean cultural... Confused yet? We contain multitudes. So look, for the sake of simplicity, let's just say that Jewish scriptural traditions are very important to acknowledge, and Greek cultural precedents are also very important to acknowledge. Why? Well, while neither traditions were exactly woke, they contained a lot of deeply contradictory elements, particularly when it came to how women were seen, and because Greek written culture could be really, really grim when it came to women. And while Judaism is surely the cultural birthplace of Christianity, within the first two or three generations, something approaching the majority of Christians were never Jewish in the first place, and even before that time, there was a major impact of Hellenistic, Persian, and Roman culture on Judaism. So the tadpole of Christianity had a body that had an awful lot of Greek water in it, and it set to swimming in a very Greek Mediterranean world. But ultimately, the pond in which Christianity began its metamorphosis was decidedly the Roman Mare Nostrum. And while this cultural tradition was in many ways continuous with the Greek past, it had centuries to evolve and change, and brought its own unique influences to the party. Ultimately, we're not here to disentangle the origins of late antiquity. Suffice it to say that the legal tradition of the Roman Empire started out very Greek, and strong Greek elements would survive into the Middle Ages, but that over the course of this evolution, the empire's practices in regards to women evolved in subtle but important ways. For example, in classical Athenian legal codes, there was pretty much never a circumstance under which women could own property. Ever. Full stop. This was also very similar in early Roman legal traditions, but by late antiquity there were circumstances under which women could own property, for example if she was an orphan or a widow. In Greek law, her property would be controlled by her nearest male relative, even if that connection was distant and extremely tenuous. In late Roman law, she would inherit if there was no immediate male family members. This may not seem like much, but as we will see, this became very important. Why did the legal and cultural norms of the ancient world soften? Did they soften? These are huge topics of argument amongst historians. To the latter question, I will say tentatively that yes, in my opinion, attitudes towards women did soften a little, but only a little. As to why this softening might have occurred, there are some historians that say the comparatively benevolent Jewish scriptural baggage of Christianity is what done it. 
Indeed, Christianity started out as an insurgent religion, and much of the work of conversion, both inside the empire and in terms of the Germanic kingdoms that followed it, would be done by women. Some historians, most notably Norman Cantor, have argued that Christianity was positively woke until the puritanical Greeks slash Romans came along with their post-Octavian obsession with moral virtue and the kids these days, and then Constantine brought it into the empire and it became mainstream and stuff. Of course, this view only works if you think that ancient Judaism, or at least the hippie-type second temple sects that came out of it, were super woke. Which, let's be clear, you would need to get me very drunk to make me call any Iron Age cultural tradition woke. I do think it's supportable to say that ancient Judaism was less horrible to women than the ancient Greeks, but boy, that's not a high bar. That's the kind of bar where, if I were participating in some sort of limbo game at a party, I would just say, you know what, I'm gonna pass on that bar. That's too low. I'm big on the metaphors tonight, apparently. Anyway, there is another historical tradition that has argued the exact opposite, that Christianity itself is the root of all misogyny in the medieval world due to its otherworldly anti-materialistic stance towards sex, and thus the object of heteronormative male sex drives. There are various shades to these arguments. Let me just give you my bias and move on. The extremist version that views Christianity as woke before the Romans, advocated very strongly by Norman Cantor in his book Civilization of the Middle Ages, is kind of absurd. But the opposite argument, that Roman civilization was a libertine free-for-all until the Christians came along with their aestheticism and their hatred of fun, is also kind of not convincing for me either. Both have elements of truth, and both don't. Mediterranean civilization had a lot against women even before the Christians showed up, and the philosophies of the Stoics, the Pythagoreans, and numerous Eastern cults and religions along those lines were all in on the aestheticism game for centuries before the Christians showed up. The idea of woman as temptress is present in pretty much ancient culture that I'm aware of, though maybe not the Egyptians? Yeah, let me know if you can think of one. On the other hand, the Christians did definitely make opposition to the supposed excesses of the Roman aristocracy a key ideological plank in their platform, if you will. In any case, the way I see it, I find it highly plausible that the role of women in the rise of Christianity, combined with relatively milder approaches to women in the Jewish scriptural tradition, probably had some strong role in softening the Roman approach to women. It's also worth saying that almost every culture had a more enlightened approach to women than the Greeks, and so the influence may also have come from the Germans, all those other Eastern uh, cults, the Egyptians, whatever. It's also worth saying that the end of the Roman Empire was a period in which people were dying all over the place from diseases, communication lines were breaking down, and the Germans were running around being all stabby. Under those conditions, holding half the population in effective infantile servitude may not have proved practical. Whatever the case may have been, in the lead-up to the end of the empire, by the time the empire began to fracture, the Mediterranean world was the inheritor of a massive intellectual tradition that drew on influences from the Iron Age Levant, the classical age of the Greek antiquity, the legal sophistication of the Roman Empire, Egyptian traditions, all those Eastern cults, a bewildering array of sources. By the time of the empire's fall, it was really difficult for contemporaries to know where their ideas even came from. And once the empire's intellectual tradition was forced through the keyhole of the empire's collapse, that task became essentially impossible. Ideas we know that in retrospect probably originated with the Greeks or the Persians or whatever are quoted by church fathers in the same breath that they reference contradictory ideas from Jewish scripture. 
Once the Germans entered the picture, and the German ideas were even more alien, you end up with a lot of ingredients in the stew, but then that stew was boiled for so long that people could no longer taste the difference between the ingredients. Hey, that's another fun metaphor. Anyway. What we end up being left with is Greek, Roman, and Jewish Christian traditions that both have things in them that could be seen as positive towards women and could be seen as negative towards women. Ultimately, I think the best way to conceptualize what all this ended up stewing down into is something that the Geises used to start up their book. It was in the third chapter, but it's the beginning of their book. This is an idea that has a massive amount of influence on Western culture even today, and many of you are probably familiar with some iteration of it. I speak of the duality of Mary and Eve. Medieval intellectuals had a wide array of women in their intellectual tradition to refer to as heroines or villainesses, but the two that most came to mind and were most often talked about and most symbolize how women were portrayed in Western culture are these twinned figures of Mary, the mother of God, and Eve, the fallen mother of humanity. Mary was apparently given divine grace that exempted her from original sin in order to create an appropriate vessel for the birthing of Jesus and as a result, she is said to have never had any kind of sexual urges. She is therefore held up as an example of human female perfection. Eve, on the other hand, was the root cause of the fall of mankind. It was through her that the devil tempted Adam, and thus she was the source of original sin. Depending on who they were addressing, medieval theologians would emphasize the one role or the other. But ultimately, the intellectual tradition of medieval Christianity viewed women as potential Marys, but probable Eves. We will delve into this more in the next few episodes. For now, let me remind you all to rate and review the show on iTunes, check us out on the social medias and stuff, but mostly, thanks for listening. I know it's been a long wait for this one. It will, of course, be a much shorter wait for the next one. But, in any case, tune in next time for another great episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Oh, and Heresiarch J, very clever. End podcast footnote. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.